right, so we're going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 11. As we go through the book of Luke, we're going to be Luke chapter 11, verse 1. If you have a Bible, open up to it. If you don't, folks are laden with Bibles, walking down, exhausted, and you need to relieve this burden from them by raising your hand if you don't have a Bible. They don't do this as an exercise in futility. They want you to hold this living, breathing Word of God. So just raise your hand. Nobody took one from you. Oh, there we go. Front row. Bless you, man. Thank you. She, she was exhausted, and you helped her. Yeah. Amen. Well, now, before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, uh, just to kind of prepare you, uh, I was, uh, I'm on vacation, uh, technically, uh, but I flew back uh, from my family on Friday because there was an important meeting in Seal Beach that went exceptionally well. A number of you were praying, and everything we asked the Lord for, he, he put forward, and it was a great blessing. In addition, um, there's a national ministry, many of you are familiar with it, that is under uh, massive attack and uh, needed scrutiny. Um, and there's, there's changes that are rapidly happening. And I saw it from a distance. And uh, I don't have a dog in the fight. I, I don't support the ministry, nor am I supported by the ministry. But I really, I, I prayed over it. Michelle and I prayed over it. And I felt like I should throw my hat in the ring to offer my help. And they made me the chairman of the board of this ministry. <laughs> and you know, I'd I don't have enough to do, so I thought, hey, why not? Um, and, it, and it has been all-encompassing over the weekend. Is, uh, it, is, it's, it is really, really got intense. Um, and it is, um, it's, there, it, it may be uh, in the NPR news, uh, it's made uh, a blog that is very, somewhat caustic. Uh, it's it's kind of divided the Calvary chapels, and I'm in the middle of it. The, the ministry needs to address some failures. Um, I, I still believe that the work of the ministry is profound, uh, but their direction and what they've done, there, there are things that really need immediate correction. It's going to require wisdom. I'd ask you to pray that the Lord would grant me wisdom. Um, I, I'm going to get my name drugged through the mud, and it's kind of like, what else is new? It doesn't bother me. But, um, but I, I really feel like God called me to do this. And as we established it, we wanted to take the previous director and hold him accountable, so we put together a board of three very well-respected Calvary Chapel pastors. I didn't know if they'd agree. The Lord had put their names on my heart, and within 24 hours, all three agreed to it. Um, we're putting a letter forward to address it and to work with it, and um, it, it, it pits me in some respects against a man I absolutely love, um, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't want the contention, quite honestly, um, and, and I don't necessarily think it needs to exist, um, but it, it's going to require a lot of work. Um, so please be in prayer for that. I really, really covet the power of prayer. Uh, I know we've been inviting you to Sunday nights, and tonight is a night of prayer. It is, to me, the most important service of the week. It does more for my soul than anything I do during the week, that time of prayer. It refreshes me more than anything you can imagine. Uh, if you want to join us, I'd be so grateful. Uh, and I want to say thank you to all of you that filled out prayer requests last week. We went through every single one of them. And the beauty of it is when one group finished praying for a, a set of the prayer requests, another group picked them up and began praying. And we just bathed all those prayer requests uh, and everyone covered them. Do it again. Keep filling them out. If you can't think of what you need for yourself, can you think of someone else who needs prayer? Uh, tonight's going to be a very hard night for many in our community as there's going to be the tree lighting over at the borderline. Um, and that's, that's going to be heavy. We're going to be praying for that. 
And I'd encourage you to, to please fill out those prayer requests. If you want to join us at 6 o'clock tonight, I'd be grateful. Prayer is so important. And again, I'm setting you up because, in a sense, the, the message is on prayer. Um, and it all deals with Jesus being with his disciples, <clears throat> and his disciples are watching him pray. And they're seeing this man praying, and they're moved because his private life of prayer was a result of his public life of power. And they looked at him, and they said, we, we see how you you accomplish things. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, we see, how you, they say, we see how you accomplish these things. What is this connection you have, and how do we get that? And they, they come to him, and they wait patiently for him to finish praying. And as soon as he finishes praying, they jump in and they ask him. And it's not the first time. He's actually taught them before in Matthew chapter 6. And this is the second time. And the beauty of it is, the prayer that he gives in Matthew 6 uh, is different than the prayer that he gives them in Matthew, uh, excuse me, in Luke 11. The prayer is almost similar, but it's not completely the same, which is nice to me because we get used to prayers that we've memorized. I remember a prayer that I memorized early on. Uh, Sit thou with us, O silent guest, our friend and scene who we love best, and by thy presence make us feel true happiness throughout this meal. Amen. And, and I never knew what it meant until I became a Christian. I'm like, what, what, why are we doing this? And it used to be that every family, most every family, would gather and they'd have a prayer over the meal. I have to tell you, there's some people in this room, if I'm with you and there's a meal, I'm not asking you to pray because I want a hot meal. <laughs> My feeling is if you want to have your devotion, do it on your own time. We're here to eat. Thank him for the food. Let's move on. And people often come to me and go, Pastor, would you, would you please offer a prayer? As though, you know, somehow you're a professional. Hey, thank you, brother. Cup of cold water in Jesus' name. And you know what? He even understood, though he speaks Spanish and I speak English. None of you understood. <laughs> so they'll say to me, Pastor, will you, will you please pray? Yes, thank you. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. <laughs> Sometimes I add, Lord, thank you for the food, but more importantly, for the company. In Jesus' name, amen. And then I eat. Because <laughs> it's, it's warm. Well, when I pray, it's hot. Now, there are times where it is called for prayer. It's not a thanking for the meal. It's a time where we're really interceding. And we get into it. And I have to tell you, I've been around people that know how to pray. And you know they have a familiarity with spending time with God. And there's something special about their life because there's something special about their prayer life. And you just see this connection. And you look at them and you go, I would, that these are folks that are familiar being in the presence of the Father. And Jesus used a term in this prayer that you're going to see momentarily that, that was not used by Jews very unfamiliar term. Matter of fact, when they heard this, most of the Jews were like, whoa, wait, what? And he used it. You can't find it anywhere in Scripture where he addresses, with the exception of Matthew 6, where he addresses God the Father, God Almighty, in this way. And it was a term of familiarity. Almost seemed as though it was unworthy of God because he's so holy, but yet the term Jesus used made him so personal. And so with that, we're going to learn today. So put your thinking caps on, open your heart to receive all that God has, and please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. 
We're going to begin at verse 1. I'm going to read out loud if you'll follow along silently. The passage reads, Now it came to pass, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Notice he doesn't say teach us how to pray. He says teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, not if, when you pray, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us or everyone who sins against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew goes on to say, For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this is the passage, and let's ask God's blessing on our study and our time in it. Lord Jesus, you said your Father's house would be called a house of prayer. We love to study prayer, but we oftentimes neglect to apply prayer. You didn't teach us how to pray. You taught us to pray. And you said when you pray, not if. It's assumed that God's children talk to the Father if we are his children, as children would speak to their father. And so, Lord, as we examine your word and the beauty of what you put before the disciples and you put before us today, may we find in each of these words a blessing that will forever guide us on our time on this earth. Lord, encourage your people, please. Encourage my heart. Lord, let us be men and women who speak with you. Let us be men and women who long to do your will and to abide in your presence. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, please. As I said earlier, um, in this passage, it says, Now it came to pass, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. There's something about watching Jesus pray. There's just something about watching him pray. And um, even as the disciples wanted to know how he did this, I think it's so important for us to have the same desire. Wouldn't you like to have that understanding where your time with the Lord is precious and things happen when you spend time in the presence of the Father. I like this. Prayer is so simple that the smallest child can pray, but it is so great that the mightiest man of God cannot be said to truly have mastered prayer. Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach, only how to pray. They walked with him for three years. They witnessed him raise the dead, walk on water. The blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear, the mute would speak. Demons had been cast out. He'd feed thousands. And he'd do it simply by the speaking of his word. They witnessed all of that. None of them ever asked, teach me how to walk on water. Teach me how to feed thousands. Teach me how to raise the dead. They never asked that. The only thing they ever asked the Lord, not once but twice, was teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. I like what Andrew Murray says, to know how to speak to God is more than knowing how to speak to man. Not power with men, but power with God is the first thing. Not to learn how to pray, but to pray 
It's assumed that we'll pray. So the Lord said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus repeated what he had taught them in Matthew 6. And I like what's said here. The fact that Jesus did not repeat it the exact same way as in Matthew shows that it was not to be used as a precise ritual or magic formula. The prayer is noted in its simplicity and its brevity. There's no magical formula. If you repeat the Lord's Prayer, all of a sudden, you know, your dog comes back and your car starts working. It's not like playing country music backwards. Never mind. And if you think being verbose and speaking in King's English will allow God to hear you better, and I I don't diminish those that have that mindset. I don't make fun of you. I know that's special to you. You were raised with that. Continue in what feels comfortable. There are oftentimes people, when I'm praying with them, they will repeat every third or fourth word, Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord God, Heavenly Father. It would be like having a conversation, and, uh, and, and as we're speaking, uh, Mike right there, I, I, Mike's talking to me, and, and as he's talking to me, Hey, Pastor Rob, I wanted you to know, Pastor Rob, that uh, tomorrow, Pastor Rob, we're going to be um, going to, uh, Pastor Rob, we're going to be going to the, um, the store, Pastor Rob. And Pastor Rob, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Pastor Rob, after a while, I'd be like, shut it. Thank God I'm not God. We've got a Maserati, I'm not sure, something gray is going off out there. It's right there. That's your car. Just press that button. We'll wait for you. Or maybe don't press a button. Maybe, maybe you just didn't like what I said. And so as the Lord is, is pointing out the simplicity of this prayer, he's making, it, he's making it simplistic and with brevity. And I like what it says in Ecclesiastes 5.2. It says, God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We're going to call AAA in a minute. We're going to have a toad. Now, let your words be few. My point is this. You, you, can, you, can, you can prattle on and try to impress those that are in your presence, or like you would have a conversation with anyone else, you're going to spend time in prayer. That doesn't mean you don't press in. It doesn't mean that, I mean, there are times you're going to have an impassioned conversation with someone. Do that. But don't be concerned with those around you as much as your relationship with the Lord. And the beauty of this is God is in heaven, you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. Profound yet few. He's got this. Give it to him. You don't have to entreat him. You don't have to, he's your dad. And the beauty of it is when the passage begins, our father in heaven. Look at that. Our father in heaven. The amazing thing about it, it was, a very, it was very unusual for Jews in that day to call God Father because it was considered too intimate. They had a great reverence for the Lord. They wouldn't even use his personal name, which is a tetragrammaton, Y-W-H-W. It, it's, it's, we try to pronounce it Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't, we, they, wouldn't even, they wouldn't even say his name, so they're not even really sure how to pronounce it. 
And we have those that are, you know, say that you have to refer to him as Jehovah or Yeshua or we still don't know how to pronounce it. It's a mysterious first name to many. And that Jesus would use the term father to, to the Jews that were present. They saw this as way too intimate and too familiar. Because the word father is Abba. It's Papa. It's Daddy. Now for folks in this room that have a very terrible, you grew up with a very terrible father. Maybe you didn't even know him. The concept of, of a heavenly father is, is hard to comprehend because we really take our earthly illustration to understand a, a heavenly being. And sadly, that's disconnected for you. It can be restored. You don't even have to look at it in that sense. You're just looking, if you ever had a dad like that, through the course of your life, you've witnessed others who have. Take the best illustration you can find and understand exponentially times whatever the most beautiful thing you've seen is and that's that's your father in heaven and you're his child and he loves you one of the things I love about praying in a circle is oftentimes while you're praying it's kind of like double dutch where the the ropes are going and you're waiting for your chance to kind of step in there (laughs) and and oftentimes while the double dutch prayer circle's happening you're waiting for your chance to pray out loud and two people will interrupt each other Two people will interrupt each other. And, and they go, oh, I'm so sorry. And the other says, no, 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 I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. It's amazing how polite you are in a prayer circle, but in traffic, way different. <laughs> Get out of the way. But one of the things I love about people interrupting is, is it's not like God's going, one at a time, please. It was, it was like me as a younger father coming home and the kids would run up and they'd all, they hadn't seen me all day. Daddy, daddy, all the same time. Trying to talk above each other. <laughs> and I loved it. Sometimes it was a little annoying, but I loved it for the most part. And I wanted to hear what each of them had to say, but I was just overwhelmed by their joy to want to be in my presence. God's not shocked when you interrupt each other. It's all good. It's all good. There's no evidence that anyone before Jesus ever used this term in addressing God by using Papa or Father. But he did add something in the passage. He says, our Father, but our Father in heaven. To say that God in heaven, God is in heaven is to say this, and these are passages of scripture, to say that God is in heaven is to say this, he is a God of majesty and dominion. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? To say that he is God in heaven, our Father in heaven, he's a God of power and might, as it says in Psalm 115, verse 3, if you're taking notes, but our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He also sees everything according to Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. This is also a prayer that is focused on community. And we've covered this, common unity, community, common unity, community. It's a prayer of community because Jesus didn't say, my father in heaven. He said, our father in heaven. The whole prayer is social. We join together as a family as the kids run to Papa and they speak at the same time. 
Morgan says the singular pronoun is absent. Man enters the presence of the Father and then prays as one of a great family. The name, Abba or Father, when they use the term hallowed, the name in antiquity stood for more than it does with us today. It summed up a person's whole character. When you said God's name, you would say Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Tizdekinu, Jehovah Shalom. His, his first name meant I am, self-existent. I am, I will be for you whatever you need when you need it. Jehovah Shalom, I will be your peace. Jehovah Tizdekinu, Jehovah Rapha, I will be your healer, your provider, your banner. All that was known and revealed about him was found in his name. And when the passage says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it shows us a passion for God's glory and his agenda, not our own. Be mindful of that. His agenda, not our own. His name, kingdom, will have top priority in our life. Now, that's a tough one because everyone wants to guard their own name and their own reputation. In the midst of this mess, in this ministry I'm a part of, the hardest part is the dominionism. My fiefdom, my fiefdom, my kingdom, my kingdom, you're wrong, you're wrong. And it's not until somebody decides to die, meaning to their, their will, not my will, but thy will be done, I is ego. Ego is self-preservation. I have obtained this. I worked for this. I built this. I oversee this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. It doesn't belong to anyone but God. And when you're wrong, you can just simply apologize and repent. Well, you don't understand what I'm going to lose if I do that. A man loses nothing who surrenders to God. We must resist the tendency to protect and promote ourselves first and instead put God's name first and his kingdom and his will first. God's not interested in your reputation. He's not interested in my reputation. He's interested in his own. The Bible says your sins will find you out. There's secret sins, there's, there's private sins, and there's public sins. Sometimes he'll keep it between you and him. Sometimes he'll keep it between you and others. Sometimes he's going to just throw it out there for everyone to see. In each case, he's wanting you to reconcile with him and to yield and to surrender. To pray is not to get God to do your bidding. To pray according to what Jesus outlined is for you to align yourself with him and to be about his business, not your own. The desire for our heart should be the will of God done on earth as it's in as it is in heaven we want to see this done on earth we're citizens of heaven we want to see his kingdom established a man can say your will be done in different ways and moods your will be done thy will be done there's a way to say that you can say it with fatalism and resentment well obviously god's in charge whatever he wants if that's how he wants to run things. And, I, and I, I don't dismiss that because there's times in my life where I've been disappointed with the Lord candidly. Maybe you haven't, I have. 
And I've had that attitude. You know, it's a wonder, God, you have any friends the way you treat them. I don't know why you had to do that. But your will be done. That's one way to declare your will be done. But you could say it with a heart of perfect love and trust. Do your will because I know it is the best. Change me where I don't understand that I might accept your will. Help me, God. Help me. I'm hurting. One might rightly wonder why God wants us to pray that his will would be done. Is he not capable of doing it himself? Doesn't prayer seem kind of fatalistic and futile? He is God, isn't he? Why does he need me to pray for his will to be done? I love what one author writes. He says, God is more than able to do his will without our prayer or cooperation, yet he invites the participation of our prayers, our heart, and our actions in seeing his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to participate. It blesses us. It gives us life and life more abundant. And then in the passage he says, give us day by day our daily bread. Give us day by day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us day by day our daily bread. The model of prayer shows us to freely bring our needs to God. It's amazing that we'll pick up the phone and call someone else for a need before we spend time on our knees in prayer. I love the fact that it's a prayer for daily bread. It's a prayer for daily bread, not a warehouse of bread, not a a truck of bread. The prayer is not... the, The prayer is for our needs, not for our greeds. If you're praying according to his will, you want to be dependent upon him. You know, King David said, Lord, don't give me so much that I forget you or too little that I resent you. The beauty of daily prayer, and that's how the Lord, that's how the Lord speaks to me. He'll, he'll tighten it up, and I'll be like, ah, uh, ah. Uh. And, and the Lord just kind of says, what's going on? Why are you, why are you, why are you having a struggle? Well, um, there, there's, I got a lot of needs right now. I know, I, I've been waiting for you to come to me. It's kind of like kids wanting to do it on their own. You know, you're little and you had training wheels. You're like, take them off, let's do this. And you're pedaling, your dad's holding it, and you're like, let go, I got this. And he lets go, and you're like, boom. Like, can I help you with that? Yeah. You, you, you get so used to your wisdom and your knowledge that you, you don't go through life as a dependent child upon the Lord. This is one area where he doesn't mind you being dependent. Murray says, um, as bread is the first need of the body, he says, so is forgiveness for the soul. The passage says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. For we also forgive, assumes, for we also forgive, it assumes that the forgiven one will also show forgiveness to others. The one thing God doesn't tolerate from his children, please listen, if you get nothing out of this, please pay attention to this. The one thing God doesn't tolerate from his children is unforgiveness. There's no room for it in the body of Christ. And and I imagine some in the room, and it's true, and I understand. Some are saying, you don't understand what happened to me. 
You don't know how they hurt me. I probably don't. But I can also say to you, you don't know how others have hurt me. I have my world too. But I can tell you what I do know. That forgiveness is not forgetting. You mention a couple of names and it takes me right back to a horrible time in my life. I see the face. I see the action. My chest gets tight. Anxiety comes. Resentment builds. I can't forget. I don't have that ability. I wish I could. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. Forgiveness is, well, let me, let me tell you what unforgiveness is. Unforgiveness is allowing the person who hurt you to lock you in a cell of unforgiveness and you reach through the bars and you give them the keys. Forgiveness is you unlock it and walk free and live your life. You can't forget, but you're free. How do you do that? It's real simple. You can't forget, but what you do is instead of laying in this prison, rotting in your bitterness and your desire for revenge that consumes your every waking thought and robs sleep from your tired body and mind, you simply say to God, God, you take the consequences of their actions and you judge them. There, there's not a court in the land that's going to give me justice. You take them. And God, if you want to save them, if you want to bring them to their knees, that's fine. I put them in your hands. I'm going to move on with my life and unlock it and move on. God is really good. He doesn't sleep or slumber. There's no shadow in his turning. There isn't social justice. There's the God of justice. He will take care of it. Trust him. Give it to him and move on. Give it to him and move on. As bread is to the first need of the body, you got to eat. So is forgiveness to the soul. You'll have no healthy Christian walk if you can't forgive. And as God has forgiven you, so forgive one another. And then the beauty of it is, as it comes to the conclusion, it says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Temptation literally means a test. Not always soliciting to do evil. It is a test. 1 Corinthians 10.13, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 10.13, God has promised to keep us from any testing that is greater than what we can handle. Let me tell you, when, when, the, when Jesus lays this prayer out for the disciples, he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know what the temptation is? Lord, I'm dependent on you every moment. And you're my dad. And, and I, I know in the schoolyard, my dad's bigger than your dad gimmick. But you really are bigger than anyone. And you love me as your child. And I want to honor you. I want to hallow you. Lord, what you've accomplished in heaven and that you left heaven to accomplish on the earth through the free will of your children yielding to you and being a part of your purpose. Lord, I want to align with you. Not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, I am so selfish. I'm so self-centered. I want to be crucified with Christ that I would abide with you. I want to have that intimacy with you and have one heart with you as Jesus had with you. 
And Lord, the thing that derails me from this ministry of touching lives and ministering to others is when people wrong me and hurt me. And when at times in my temporal mind, my earthly body, I look at a heavenly God who is beyond explanation and I I confess I don't understand you and I, I want to abandon you, I want to reject you, I want to doubt you, I'm tempted, but God, would you allow me to keep my eyes on you, the author and finisher of my faith, that when the trials of life come and these flaming tests, these arrows of doubt, these, these arrows of, of ego, would you allow me to have corporate prayer that you're our Father, not just mine, that I would see the community of the believers My heart would be strengthened in the fellowshipping with others. Would you allow me to be strengthened in corporate prayer? Would you allow me to intercede and step out of my selfishness into the needs of others? Would you break my heart with what breaks yours? And Lord, as I'm walking, I'm tempted to be derailed. But would you help me? Would you keep my mind steadfast on thee? Help me, God. Help me. Deliver me from the evil one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the author of lies. He wants me to doubt you. He wants me to reject you. He wants me to make it about me. And I want to make it about you and others. Joy, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Lord, I want to be your child. I did not come to be served, but to serve. To give my life as a ransom for the many. It's to a man's benefit to overlook an offense. God, would you allow me to see them the way you did on the cross as you were crucified? You said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While we were at enmity, while I was at enmity with you, while I was at war with you, you died for me. You love your enemies. You do good to those who spitefully use you. Would you, would you make me abide with you so I can live like that? This task is daunting and overwhelming. Everyone is yelling and screaming in this ministry. I have no idea what to do next. It's insane. God, help me. You have a wayward child. Help me, God. The fervent, faithful prayers of a righteous man or woman accomplish great things. Press in. He's your dad. He loves to hear from you. We're so unaccustomed to spending time in his presence. Prayer is foreign in our culture today. It wasn't always that way. This prayer behind me is what's called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm 54 years old. I was born in 1964. In 1963, there was a a seismic shift in America. There are some in the room older than me. Watch this. Those in the room older than me, do you remember when you were in a public school and you recited that prayer, please raise your hand? Look around, keep your hands up, look around. Thank you, and you can put your hands down. 
1963, Vital versus Engel. Prayer in public schools were removed. 67, religious reading, Bible teaching was removed. I'm a product of that generation, myself and those younger than me. How many of you have never prayed in a public school um, this Lord's Prayer, open the time? How many of you have never witnessed that? Please raise your hand. Welcome to America. You see, this all occurred when um, that young man on the left, his name is William Murray. On the right is his mother, Madeline. This is William's younger brother. Madeline was a single mom. She was married to an enlisted uh, Marine. They, They were transferred to Italy on a tour of duty, and while she was there, She committed adultery with an officer, a marine officer. She got pregnant by the marine officer with William, the oldest son. Her last name wasn't uh, wasn't Murray. And she was pregnant, and the man did not want to leave his wife and dismissed her. She was so upset that the child was born, and she didn't name the child after her last name. She named it after the officer. And named him William Murray. She wanted him to know that you're going to take responsibility for this bastard child. You can't dismiss me. You men are all alike. She was hurt. She'd been raised in a Christian home, but that was it. And she raised that child. I want nothing to do with this religious class. These people who speak out of one side of their mouth and act differently. She got embittered. She met another man named O'Hare. And through that had a second child, the young man in the uh, picture to my left. She changed her name to Madeline Murray O'Hare. She lived in Maryland and was sick and tired of listening to the Lord's Prayer recited in the public schools. And she was tired of the religious education and the teaching of the Bible. And so she brought a class action suit that was appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, challenged Bible Bible reading and prayer recitation in the Maryland public schools. Murray, Marilyn Murray O'Hare, Murray versus Kirtlet, 1963. She also went on to become the head of the atheist organization. And to my left, your right, is the younger son who grew up, as you can see. And the young lady to the right is William's daughter, born out of wedlock. He was a player, gave birth to this young gal. And they were removed from each other. And Madeline ended up adopting her granddaughter, who became her daughter slash granddaughter. William was removed from the family. There was tension in the family. Madeline Murray O'Hare went on to be responsible for Murray versus Kurtlet, the removal of Bible reading and prayer recitation, Engel versus Vital, removal of prayer from school. We've seen a number of court rulings, the removal of religious instruction from school, that it's unconstitutional for a student to pray out loud in school, and the removal of the Ten Commandments from school. And here's the headline that Madeline Murray O'Hare was 
uh, part of, the Supreme Court ruled eight to one to prohibit the Lord's Prayer and Bible reading as a public school requirement. She went on to have a number of other cases. She argued and challenged Murray versus Nixon in 1970 to challenge the weekly religious services in the White House. Uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare versus Payne in 71 to challenge open readings of the Bible. I'll cover that in a moment. She went on to do all kinds of things. She was an interesting, interesting bird. She tried to get political asylum to Russia and wanted to immigrate there, but they wouldn't let her in. She's no longer living. All the people on the right here are no longer living. The only one living of the four is William. William is a pastor. He's a minister now. I've met him. I'd consider him a friend. He's burdened because his name is attached to one of the most heinous rulings in the history of the United States that, as you saw earlier, caused a seismic shift. A few of you raised your hands and the rest of you didn't. What happened in 1963 with this ruling, prayer and Bible reading removed from the school that had existed there for hundreds of years, all of a sudden the statistical results of removing prayer and the Bible from schools, all the social barometers began to go in the opposite direction. Hard to read. Here's one for you. 25 million extra man years of incarceration were caused by the U.S. Supreme Court's banning of school prayer in 63. There you have it, 1963, school prayer banned and the incarceration rate exponentially rises. Ah, you say, well, that's, that could be attributed to a number of things. Yes, 1963, prayer removed from schools, SAT scores precipitously drop. Prayer removed from schools, religion in America precipitously drops. Oh, it got bad. I came into the world in 64. By 68, I'm four years old. 69, I remember being five years old, being at the Washington Monument with my father, and they were throwing bottles at us, and I remember my dad being spit on when he came back from Vietnam wearing his captain's uniform. Uh, 1969, 68, America was in a free fall. People had checked out of church. Young people started to pursue Eastern religions and experiment with drugs, and you had Haight-Ashbury, and you had Woodstock, and, and it was crazy. Cray-cray. 68 was a rough year. You think, you think uh, the, the MAGA hats and Trump and the division in the country's bad? You have no idea. This is, this, is, this is a cakewalk compared to 68. In 69, we'd have the Kent State shootings where National Guardsmen would fire upon university students and kill them. We had the Tet Offensive. We had Vietnam. We had the My Lai Massacre. Not only, not, in 68, first of all, 63, John F. Kennedy is shot. In 68, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is shot on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Race riots are raging across America. Watts is on fire. Some of you served in that capacity. I know one fellow in particular who was in Watts during the riots. 
Right here in Los Angeles in 1968, Bobby Kennedy, just like his brother, was shot by Sirhan Sirhan at a hotel in Los Angeles. The nation is divided. We're pitted against each other. I remember driving out and seeing the war riots. I remember it. A young child, I'm just witnessing this. Russia's on the rise. Vietnam is overwhelming. 75, we have the fall of Saigon, 73. I get the dates wrong a little bit. I think it was 75. Last helicopter out of Vietnam. Russia's on the rise, and all of a sudden in 63, before John F. Kennedy is shot, he puts a challenge before the people of the United States as the fabric of religion is being removed in 63. He stands before the nation, and he says, I want to put a man on the moon. Let's look to the heavens. Well, Russia beat us to it. Yuri Gagarin, he was the first man to go to space And Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier of Russia, the USSR, said, why didn't you step on the brakes in front of God? Here is Gagarin, who flew up to space, and yet even he didn't see God anywhere. Gagarin would be quoted as saying, I didn't see God. And someone else said, if you had stepped out of the space capsule, you would have. (laughs) Nikita Khrushchev would say in 68... Your children's children will live under communism, saying this. You Americans are so gullible. No, you won't accept communism outright, but we'll keep feeding you small doses of socialism until you will finally wake up and find that you already have communism. We won't have to fight you. We'll so weaken your economy until you fall like overripe fruit into our hands. That was in 59. He accomplished it by 68. The nation was in turmoil. I mean turmoil. You get to the conclusion of a year that included the My Lai Massacre, the Tet Offensive, the death of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the death of Bobby Kennedy. The next year would be the Kent State shootings. It was vile. We were torn apart. Our kids were drugged out. Our, our, our schools were in riots. We were divided as a nation. Civil war was on the brink. Black Panthers on the rise. Race riots. White nationalists. And then something interesting happened. The last words of a president before he's shot in Dallas, Texas, as he places them before the nation and talks about putting a man in the heavens. The space program is still in full force. Every single one of the astronauts sent into space were all Eagle Scouts or Boy Scouts. They had had moral foundations. They had been raised in a generation where they recited the Lord's Prayer. They knew the presence of God. They did these things as unto the Lord. They worked diligently. And by Christmas of 1968, America is ready to challenge the Russians. And we do something no one in the world had ever done with Apollo 8, with astronauts Borman, Lovell, and Anders, these three men. We send... Astronauts to orbit the moon, never before done. This was the orbital plan. They went to the dark side of the moon. Everyone was listening. Not only would they orbit the moon, but they would come back and survive. And after they had finished orbiting, it was one of the most listened to broadcasts in the history of the world. Christmas, 1968. This right here incited Madeline Murray O'Hare. It angered her. You see, as James Lovell and Anders, the three astronauts, capsule, December 25th, 1968, 
listen to the broadcast that the world listened to. Let's play it if you would. Turn it up so everyone can hear it. Please. choked up every time I see it. It didn't take long for Madeline Murray O'Hare to be, let me, here we go. It didn't take long for Madeline Murray O'Hare to be livid. <laughs> O'Hare versus Payne challenged the open readings from the Bible by U.S. astronauts who were federal employees during their space flight spurred by a reading from the book of Genesis by the crew of Apollo 8. Well, that didn't stop him. Yesterday marked the 50th anniversary of the first man to ever walk on the moon, Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon. He was the commander of Apollo 11. Michael Collins was the commander of the, mod the module pilot. He was the one who they said was the loneliest man since Adam as he had jettisoned the landing capsule and he was in the command module, he piloted around the dark side of the moon and didn't know if the other two would still be alive or if they'd, because he lost radio contact, he didn't know if they'd landed safely, he didn't know if they'd be there when he came back around. 
He was the furthest any human being had ever been from the earth, and he was all alone. And of course, we know Edwin Aldrin, or as they like to call him, Buzz Aldrin. He was the lunar module pilot. He also stepped foot. He was the second man to step foot on the moon. I share all this because we don't have an occurrence where they read scriptures. But you know what the very first meal was by the astronauts on the moon? Communion. Buzz had brought communion from his church, and he and Armstrong had communion. One-sixth gravity, they were still able to pour it into the chalice that they have on display at the church in Texas. I want you to see this. We're almost finished. I want to see this. There's two videos. I want to show you this one video. This is our friend Bill Federer. Uh, Listen to this video. He describes it better than I possibly could. Getting to and landing on the moon may have been one of mankind's greatest accomplishments, but the astronauts who reached it didn't leave God out of the picture. Historian William Federer points to the Apollo 11 moonwalkers. Before they get out of the lunar module, they have a moment of silence and Buzz Aldrin celebrates communion. He pours the grape juice in zero, uh, one-sixth gravity and it does a slow little circle and he reads John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he takes bread that was partly consumed at the communion service before he launched. He saved a piece of the bread and he celebrated communion. So the first items uh, that were consumed on the moon was communion. The world didn't hear it because a famous atheist had given NASA grief over Apollo 8 astronauts publicly reading from the Bible. Madeline Murray O'Hare had threatened to sue because the Apollo 8 had mentioned God. They read from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. As Apollo 11 headed back to Earth, Buzz Aldrin said this to a listening world. Reflecting on the events of the past several days, a verse from Psalms comes to mind. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Nine months later, when an accident on board Apollo 13 might have doomed its three astronauts to die in space, much of the planet turned to God. President Nixon calls the nation to pray, and they have prayer on the Chicago Board of Trade and the Vatican and the Wailing Wall all around the world. Lord, your astronauts will come back safe. The exploration of space has been hazardous adventure. The voyage of Apollo 13 dramatized its risks. With the crew alive and back on Earth, mankind thanked God. President Nixon has a national day of Thanksgiving to celebrate this. One of the last Apollo flights featured Mission Control's Charles Duke getting to walk on the moon. He spoke of it later. I used to think that, I'm paraphrasing, going to the moon would be the greatest achievement. He says, but my walk with Jesus is, is more memorable because it's an everyday affair. So uh, just a fascinating uh, faith that Charles Duke had, plus all the astronauts. Uh, Jim Irwin became, a fifth, Apollo 15 became an evangelical minister, and Apollo 14 left a microfilm copy of the King James Bible on the moon. It's interesting how many of those men who flew far into the heavens couldn't get the God of heaven out of their thoughts. Paul Strand, CBN News. Getting to and landing on the... Yeah. And a copy of the New King, or a copy of the King James Bible is on the moon right now. Um, of all the astronauts that walked on the moon, they were all Boy Scouts. They, all of them had a faith in some capacity. 
But what's interesting is it brings us back, not only did they land on the moon, not only did they take communion as their first meal, but it brings us back to William Murray, my friend. He carries an enormous burden that he was used by his mother as an instrument to remove the Lord's Prayer from the public schools of our nation. And every social barometer that needs to go up went down, and every social barometer that needs to go down went up. We're in a season now where we are reaping what we've sown. He's so burdened by it, and he's a man who's faced tragedy his whole life. When he announced that he'd become a Christian, his mother said in her memoirs, in a book, she wrote this, She said, one could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother. I guess I repudiate him entirely and completely for now and all times. He is beyond human forgiveness. Not only does he carry the heaviness, and you can see it in his face, of this legacy upon his name, but his mother and his brother and his daughter were all violently murdered. For money. I won't go into detail because there's young children present, but suffice it to say it was awful. It's okay, we had it happen second service. It's just a, a train happening right now. Okay, good. Next time I'm gonna make you dance. His heart's broken. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It works for a family. It works for a nation. And it works for a world. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. If you leave God, as Madeline and her younger son and her granddaughter did, if you follow the Lord and you say, lead me not into temptation, you have life and life more abundant, it doesn't mean we won't suffer as as William has. It just means you see it. His prayer is, God, please fix it. I'm so sorry. I don't want, I don't want people younger than me to be raising their hand with that question. I want the barometers, the social barometers to switch. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These precepts, these principles, Lord, cause us to have life and life more abundant. God, help us. I want to close with this. You see, Not only did we used to recite the Lord's Prayer in schools, but it has become much like amazing grace. It is something that stirs in the human heart that in a time of crisis, the one thing many people can seem to recall to the best of their ability in a culture that is quickly removing religion and faith from their fabric, we still look back in the vagueness of our memory And call upon the words that we just studied this morning. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.
If you don't know it, listen to this rendition of it. We'll close with this, and then I'll close with prayer at the end of this song. on for another minute, but I, I didn't want to keep you too long. You're probably upset that I cut it, but Andrew Botticelli, just go look it up. Would you stand with me? We're going to do something that one day, I pray, 
Every family in America will do and continue to do. We're going to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 